account. Okay. And how long, uh, how quickly do we give platelets? Over an hour or so? Or? No, I just run them in gravi- by gravity. So okay, so just yeah. run them in bang. Okay. Yeah, so spike the bag. That's how anesthetists yeah. give blood products. But on the ward, they're usually like six hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, um, um, I'm, I'm pretty... Okay, so so that's good. So that's changed my memory. So if I have one of these questions... Welcome back again. This is part two of um, my um, conversation with Simon Kavanagh, a hematologist based here in Perth, where last week we talked about all things to do with thrombocytopenia in pregnancy. So we discussed the common causes, the definition, um, gestational thrombocytopenia, uh, immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, and then the um, fragmentation syndromes. And sort of did a bit of a deep dive on all those different types of um, um conditions in pregnancy and this week uh, we're going to talk um, a little bit more detail about some other related topics such as plate transfusions and then some hypothetical scenarios um, which may challenge those of you who work in a remote setting so managing bleeding patients with thrombocytopenia where um, platelets are a long way away uh, and then also a hypothetical scenario with a patient who is a difficult cross match or has antibodies. Okay, on with the show. I think we've, uh, we're down to the bit now we're talking about platelet transfusions. You, were, you mentioned it briefly. When, when should we consider transfusing platelets? How effective are they? Because, you know, some of these ones, these syndromes where they're getting used up, they disappear pretty quick. They do. They um, yeah. and, uh, and also I'd like to pick your brains on how, how difficult they are to supply and all that sort of issue. Uh, I, I, might, I might answer the easy one there first. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> platelets are so there's, there's two different sorts of platelets that we can get yep. uh, there's the apheresis donor platelets where if you go in and you donate apheresis platelets they you essentially get hooked up to a, a centrifuge blood comes out and you spin off platelets yep uh, and one donation can be used to make one or two bags of platelets yep the other are the pooled uh, platelets where if you donate whole blood the platelet fraction is separated off and blood from or platelets from three or four donors are combined to give one unit uh, there's there's advantages and disadvantages to both of these we tend to, the apheresis tend to be utilized for those people who are receiving chemotherapy who are likely to need multiple units of platelets over time uh, to try to minimize immune uh, responses okay because they are exposed to only one donor not multiple. yeah so yep. one donor per time yeah. And if they're getting 10 bags, it's uh, 10 as opposed to 30 to 40 donor exposures yes, with, with our immunisation. Yep. Um, we've recently, I think it was earlier this year, moved towards platelets with a seven-day expiry life, which is fantastic for infantry management. Makes right. life much it used easier. to be five days, was it? Yeah. yeah, and by the time they left the Red Cross and arrived on site, that was closer to three days of yeah. practical time. Yep. So it's made a big difference for inventory management and made life much easier. And the, the reason why they're only stored that period of time is because they're stored at room temperature and there's an increased risk of bacterial sepsis, is that yeah. right? Yeah, so bacterial contamination is not uncommon yeah. uh, with platelets. Um, and, and as well, they've actually got quite a short half-life in general terms. Red cells have a much longer half-life, so we can store them cold in preservative for a much longer period. 
if you keep your platelets for much more than seven days, you're going to have a pretty low yield on your platelet increment. Yeah. <clears throat> so they just basically you infuse them, they go straight to the spleen and say goodbye. Yeah, Is that what basically, happens? Yeah. Yep. And, and they that, don't and they don't really contribute to hemostasis. It yep. doesn't do that much good. Now yep. what happens once we give a bag of platelets, what kind of increment can you expect? Well, that's a really, really difficult one. It depends on blood volume, depends on dose of platelets, etc. But I usually take the view that if you've got a a very low platelet count, let's say it was less than ten. Yep. It's not something we tend to encounter here, but um, for, say, chemotherapy patients, yep. if you give a platelet transfusion and check a platelet increment, you know, an hour later, you probably see a platelet count of about 50 to 60 in most people. Okay. But they've, uh, they've just, they're just not making platelets. They're not destroying that's, them. That's, that's right. That's, so that's a bit different. Isn't it? If you've then got a woman with an expanded blood volume, you'll get less of an increment because there's the same yep. number of platelets over a greater volume. Uh, and it's, uh, certainly in the fragmentation syndromes and anything else consumptive or in the context of massive hemorrhage, you'll get a less reliable increment. And so we cannot, we, you can certainly find yourself giving more platelets. The usual thresholds for transfusion, though, um, depends on context, but active bleeding, you, you absolutely would transfuse. Otherwise, though, I would usually use the threshold of less than 10 or less than 20, depending on what else is going on. Okay. And what about um, prior to delivery or caesarean? So say someone with HELP syndrome, this is a sort of a fairly um, standard scenario with platelet count of 25 or something like that. I've seen that seen it a lot. Yep. Um, who's not bleeding but, you know, is uh, coming up for a caesarean. We want to do a spinal and they want to do a caesarean. Yeah, so in that case I would use some platelets. Yep. Uh, and ideally I'd have them running at the same time as the, the needle puncture was made or the knife was to skin because... Yep. That way you've got as much chance of having active circulating platelets flowing through that vessel as possible. Yep. If you administer <coughs> before, uh, say, spinal puncture, uh, before caesarean, anything that you've transfused will still be subject to the same clearance and so you may not get as great a uh, an active platelet count. Okay. And how long, uh, how quickly do we give platelets? Over an hour or so? Or? No, I just run them in gravity, by gravity. Stack. Okay, so just yeah. run them in bang. Okay. Yep, so spike the bag. That's how anesthetists give blood products. But on the ward, <laughs> they're usually like six hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, um, I'm, I'm pretty... Okay, so so that's good. So that's changed my management. So if I have one of these patients again in the future, I know I'll, I'll ask for the platelets and then I'll just get them in the anesthetic room and I'll set them up and I'll just run it in yep. and do, so the, spot, and do like, the spot. I like to get, you know, maybe quarter of the bag in just a just a little bit of a buffer but and while, then while you and running, then do the spinal and while, while they're running and again. then as soon as the spinal's in we'll go on and do the yeah, caesar yeah absolutely so like theoretically how quickly could they get consumed and and removed from the circulation a few hours yeah i mean yeah, certainly so it could be all over so only a small window yeah and certainly yeah. in people with itp they'll be subject to the same antibody process that the, yeah, the itp okay. is doing so there are in uh, again Alloimmunized patients, you might see, or people with ITP, you might do a one-hour increment, so transfuse platelets, check a platelet count an hour later, and see no change. Yeah. So you can see very rapid clearance. Wow. Okay. Yep. So now that I understand why you say just run it in. So the other thing I, I learned many years ago when, we were, when I was on the transfusion committee, you're not allowed to give platelets through a giving set that's had red cells through it yep. because the filter blocks up with presumably yep. fragmented red cells, etc. Red, red cell gunk and so on. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think everyone... Most clinicians don't know that because, to be honest, most people don't give platelets very often. Mm. Like, 
you know, even yep. in, even in hospitals that give a lot of platelets. I presume you know places that do, you know, tertiary surgery and trauma and stuff. You know, on the individual basis, you know, if you pick, picked someone out and said, "How when did you last give platelets?" There's probably a few years between. Yeah. And they so, do that in other hospitals as well, so the, yeah. com- the, the overall comfort Especially level in a major hemorrhage, which is a common scenario here at Kingwood. you know, eventually we start running out of platelets and we ask for them. Um, it's not something that pops into someone's head, oh, don't give it through that same rapid infusion yeah. set, because the filter is already full of red cell That's gunk. That's right. And, you know, normally you change the giving set sort of much more infrequently, but for pla- yeah. particularly for platelets, I would, I would Yeah, so for platelets, I think it's safe to just give them their own giving set and yeah. maybe even use another IV. Um, separate if you're in a major hemorrhage scenario. Yep. Um, right, so that's pretty good. We've been talking for a while, but it's all been gold, so um, I'm happy with that. Um, if we go on for a bit longer, I might even split this up into a two-part <laughs> podcast because most people listen in the car and they've probably stuck 50, in the 15-minute window. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So anyway, um, I was going to hit you up with some a sticky scenario to finish off with. Um, this is not a real case, but it is... Loosely based on some sort of anecdotes I've heard and a couple of real phone calls I've received. So a 22-year-old Indigenous woman with no antenatal care presents to Kununurra Hospital. I've tried to choose the most geographically distant place in Western Australia, <laughs> closer to Darwin than it is Perth, mm. with severe help syndrome, uh, which they discover f- um, on you know, basically best based on a full blood count in LFTs. And, but she has fetal distress and it's 34 weeks in and they just have to do an emergency Caesar. There's no time to transfer her anywhere. they just got to deal with it. So they knock her out and give her a Caesar, and um, and then she starts bleeding, and this all happens in the, over a period of like one or two hours from when she first appeared in the hospital. Um, and after two litres of blood loss, the full blood count shows a platelet count of 20. And then there's a few frantic phone calls by both the, or by the, you know, the GP anaesthetist and uh, obstetric staff um, to the Judy anaesthetist and the haematologist here at King Edward. As the haematologist, um, Simon, what would you recommend? <laughs> no. Or you just make sure that you're not, not on call that day? Yeah, not, not being on call, I think, for this one would be the uh, would be favourite. Um, so there's, a, there's multiple challenges here. Um, for, um, first and most obvious one, is just the sheer distances involved. Yeah. I think Kununurra is a long way from anywhere. Yeah, I know. Uh, and scary. especially in this situation. Um, so we're not going to be able to get any blood products to to this lady from Perth. Even Broome, which is probably the nearest sort of kind of well-stocked lab, uh, is still a long way off and probably better off flying product down from Darwin than, uh, yep. than trying to get it from anywhere in WA. And... Evacuation probably to Darwin again would be the yep. probably the best. Yep. So that you know that's the ultimate goal is management of this lady in Kununurra is not going to be viable uh, in anything more than the short term. Yep. Um, two two kind of immediate and pressing issues are the, the active bleeding um, yep. and the severe thrombocytopenia. Um, platelet count of twenty almost certainly contributing, although. The issue here is that we won't, we don't stock platelets in Kununurra, and there is no way to get them there in the next hour. So we have, no. to, we have to manage that hemorrhage on the basis of what we've got on the ground. That'll be a combination of surgical factors. Is there anything else that can be done surgically to control the hemorrhage? Yep. Um, and then all of the other 
sort of standard haematological things. Has tranexamic acid been given? If if not, give it. And if it has, maybe think about giving more. Yep. It's earlier than I normally would give a second dose. You know, normally I wouldn't give it until as much sort of more significant blood volume loss. But here we've got no other option. Um, we do have some fresh frozen plasma. We do have some cryoprecipitate, I believe, or at least fibrinogen concentrate in Kananara. So throwing those two things yep. in would be a, you know earlier rather than later um, would be wise. Uh, and this is a scenario where, although it's very much off-label, and I'll, I'll have my uh, wrist smacked for even mentioning it, prothrombin X or yep. any, quite literally any other coagulation factor that's available would be something I'd be thinking about early in this yeah. in this case. And I guess the, the other thing is they can always have us. They can always talk to us on the phone, so they can try those things sequentially and then, yep. you know, um, see what happens. And yeah, and the the other the other. I mean, this usually happens at about two a.m. Um, yeah. Or you know, on a Friday night or Saturday, Saturday night. Um, but trying to get all the people in quickly uh, yep. is is absolutely key, and having and making sure the scientist is is, you know, who's coming in from home probably is is aware of what's happening before they even sort of jump in the car. Yep. Um, the the other point I was going to make, you know, checking the particularly in um, in help syndrome we often see coagulopathy relatively early yes that's right and so and and I, I'm very doubtful that uh, Kununara would have in fact I'm confident Kununara won't have a rotum which we're uh, which we're I'll be surprised but you never know <laughs> I'd, I'd be very I'd be <laughs> no, they don't. confident um, but uh, early coagulation profile studies yes. and and repeating those on a regular basis so I'm, I'm actually not familiar but but presumably the coag profile there does measure fibrinogen and all the other yeah it'll be levels, a, yep. a standard um, standard analyzers so yep. you'll get an INR PT, PT INR APTT and a fibrinogen and I'm uh, I'm pretty sure most of the well not all of the small hospitals or I imagine Kananara definitely would have um, fibrinogen concentrate I think uh, was organised a few years back uh, and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that they've got some stocks of cryo precipitate yep. as well so you've got at least you know yeah one, and that's or, one or two ways of yep. bumping the uh, the fibrinogen up yeah and cryo precipitate is good um, because it does have some other pro-coagulant things like von Willebrand's factor and things isn't it so and fibronectin and a few and other odds and ends yeah. and stuff yeah yep. absolutely so I mean, I tend to prefer that just because it is—it's almost a dirtier product. Yeah, but it's but it's a bit it's more broad and it's um, exactly. hemostatic potential, exactly. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And I'm trying to remember what advice I gave, um, but you know, I think I can't remember if actually—I don't think my phone call was about um, uh, platelet count of twenty. But it's the other thing that I say is, um, yeah, so surgical, you know, uh, management can sometimes be a bit timid. You know, you can give some oxytocin and then you wait. 30 minutes and they bleed a litre and then you give some ergometrin and you wait 30 minutes to give them but actually someone like this you should probably just like tie off the urinary arteries as well and if it doesn't work do a hysterectomy you know like it's a bit like a bleeding Jehovah's Witness you should rattle through all those things really quickly you're not waiting 20 minutes between each intervention you're basically just going for it yeah and And definitive treatment is is sometimes life-saving is like a hysterectomy and with and nothing available in the background, knowing that once you've yeah. burned, once you've burned through your red cell stocks, you yeah. know, if you've lost, you know, if this turned into a five or six liter hemorrhage, and we've we've used ten bags we of red cells, where you know that that's the stock gone. Yeah, and uh, we we should probably clarify that it's not easy to do a Caesar hysterectomy. It is not the same as doing a hysterectomy in a gynae patient. This is a massive organ that is very mm-hmm. vascular. 
go out when someone is a 34 weeks pregnant and uh, that's very challenging as well so I'm not trying to for anyone who's listening <laughs> say that you know you should it's, uh, it's think quick, it should just jump into it yeah. and it's going to be an easy solution but what I guess the point I was making is that you want to rattle through all these things quickly um, because there's you know, there's, there's no emergency parachute at the other side yeah that's right yeah you're, you're in a skydive situation and you've got to get the parachute out somehow um, yeah and you know sometimes bad things happen and and the other I think the other point I would make in this scenario is I would, I would almost err on the side of generosity with red cell use yep um, so red red cells uh, we we try to not transfuse and the, you know the the amount of blood transfused at King Edward especially has dropped substantially over the years um, but red cells also help in major hemorrhage they help to marginate the platelets yes push yes, them I have towards heard about the, that as well to push them towards the actual endothelial surface where they are active. So being more generous with red cells earlier on in this case, given sort of the the limited other options, would be a reasonable strategy. Yeah. So the other thing that I've heard other people say, and which I say now too, is, um, you know, if you don't have platelets, well, um, you know, the two two main building blocks of a blood clot are fibrinogen and platelets. So if you don't have one or the other, you should just be more generous. So instead of aiming for a fibrinogen and grabbing two, Aim for four, you know, go high. Yeah. So give lots of fibrinogen. Don't like do a coed profile and see that it's two point four and and, she'll, and she'll, stop she'll there. Right. Yeah, aim, right. and go, so forget about the guideline saying just over two is okay. Go for like four or five. You know, just fill them up with fibrinogen because I think, that is, um, yeah. you know, will you know will um, provide another. You know, um, I, I think if I if I had this phone call at two a.m. on a Saturday morning, it would be. Give give what you've got, yeah. Because it's going to be hours before you get anything more, and if you run into trouble, then there's no there's no bailout. So yeah. be very generous and very generous early. Yeah, I take my head off. I have worked in uh, rural centres, but only as a more junior doctor. So it's, it's these sorts of things can are very challenging when when you're in the in a regional or rural situation. Um, so we've been talking for a long time. <laughs> what about um, I think I will split this up into two, so we'll keep going for this last final yep. question. <laughs> so what about um, uh, the phone call from someone who's bled, bled two or three litres, uh, an Indigenous patient who has a difficult cross-match, so they've, so, been, so they've got an antibody. I can't remember what it was now when I had this phone call. I think they'd bled about three litres and they had iron deficiency anemia, which is quite common, so they were starting off a little bit low. Uh, and the... Uh, the person on the phone, I think it was a GP obstetrician, or it might have been the GP anaesthetist, was asking um, whether it's okay to give the O negative that they had, because I think their hospital only had like four units of O negative, something like that. Uh, and I thought, I think they phoned both me and um, the haematology person as well. And they got, I, I said to talk to you guys uh, about whether it's safe <laughs> or not, because it depends on the actual antibody and what the previous tests have shown and that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, it, it depends very much on the antibody. Yeah. But as a, as a very sort of general rule, the, the things that we worry most about, the acute hemolytic reactions, are all ABO mediated. Yep. So as long as you're not transfusing A to an O patient or B to an A patient, for you know, clear, clearly things you shouldn't be doing, yep. the risk of an acute hemolytic reaction is low. You can see it with other antibodies, but the probability is much less likely and they don't tend to be as severe. The delayed hemolytic reactions, which are far more common in a, you know, the, the kid, the 
um, the other rhesus groups, the the C, the E, antigens, etc., yep. yep. are delayed. And so, if you've got someone who's going to bleed to death because of uh, delayed transfusion, because of concerns about an antibody, I just give blood. Yep. O negative, group specific. If you know they've, if you've got a recent group and antibody screen and know they've got an antibody, then you could give, you could skip the O negative and move straight to group specific. Um, and keep the O negative in, in in reserve, basically. But um, you know, have a, rock, a rockier course down the track if if you're transfusing blood yes. that's antigen incompatible. But you need to be alive to to yeah, have a rockier right. course down the line. So I tend I tend to be fairly um, fairly com- I am comfortable with transfusing across the across yeah. antigen antibody mismatch in that situation. Um, I'm just going to chuck in an anecdote because this is just triggered a memory. So when I was my first anaesthetic job ever, I did anaesthetics ICU in Rockhampton, and we had RFDS brought us a farmer who had been run over by some cattle. This is like a classic <laughs> Rockhampton story, which is the beef capital of Australia. If you read the Lonely, Go- Lonely Planet Guide, um, so this poor guy was in his, um, uh, you know, in his paddocks, and they were herding their their cattle up to bring them into the, you know, the, um, uh, to go on the trucks and. Uh, he got caught, uh, cornered or fell over or something anyway, sort of a bit of a stampede and a few cattle went over the top of him and it was, it was like a serious trauma uh, to his chest and some of his limbs and things. And I think they gave him a couple of units of O negative in the, uh, in the RFDS um, retrieval process. Um, and actually, he, if I remember right, he wasn't that anemic, but I mean, he was bleeding. And the, But unfortunately, he was a known um, antibody of some sort and I can't remember the details, I wish I could. But he did develop some sort of reaction, which uh, caused um, some multi-organ dysfunction. And I think in the whole scheme of things, he he did end up passing away. But I can't remember, you know, how much of that was from the. Um, mm. But a lot of I think there was a lot of concern at the time because he had this quite bad hemolytic reaction and, and renal, yeah. renal renal failure, needed dialysis, didn't do very well, ended up dying. Yeah, and, and so, so the the classic. I mean, if you if you transfuse, let's say. Uh, Someone with a JK, JKR kid antibody, yep. uh, kid positive um, unit of red cells, not much will happen immediately. Day or two later, as that anti antigen antibody complex starts to be cleared by the spleen, the jaundice and a rapid drop in hemoglobin back to what it was beforehand. But by that time, in, in this context, and at least in this patient, you'll have had the opportunity to order in more compatible blood yes. and can transfuse yep. or evacuate the patient. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are only a couple of antibodies uh, that we see that are sort of pan-reactive and will cause acute hemolysis. We've had a couple of cases here in the last two years with essentially no compatible blood available within Australia, uh, yeah. and and the prospect of you know life-threatening hemolysis if yeah. transfused. So you have to treat treat them like a Je- Jehovah's Witness, basically. Yeah, Just do everything complete, you can. Complete, complete sort of. Yeah, brown trousers time. <laughs> well, get, get luckily none crossed. of them have had a placenta percreta or anything exciting. I do. I've looked after a few of these women. They, they just same as looking after Jehovah's Witnesses mm. and make sure they're not anemic when they deliver, yep. uh, and um, sell salvage and just you know make sure they don't bleed. And, um, and the other thing I would say is, is in that context, I mean, let's say she was not indigenous, um, was a. A negative blood group. Uh, most most indigenous women, most indigenous men are rhesus D positive. Right. Um, but so, let's say it was an A negative patient. Um, I would rather, again, keep her alive by using O positive blood. 
yep. than to use only rhesus D negative blood to avoid you know alloimmunisation. Um, there are a proportion of people, maybe about twenty five percent, maybe a bit lower, that don't seem to respond to rhesus D antigen. Uh, you, can, you almost can't vaccinate them against it. Yep. So that she may not respond anyway. And in the context of massive hemorrhage and so forth, that antigen sort of response may be further attenuated. Okay. So I would use the negative yeah. units first, but if there was ongoing hemorrhage, I would be thinking about switching across to the, the D yeah. positive units. My, my take home from this conversation is that you just get on the phone and talk to the on-call hematologist yeah. here at Kingwood because <laughs> they can just look on the computer and they can tell you what the results are and they know what you, what stocks you have and you, it's just you guys can give um, some really useful yeah. advice yeah, yeah so it's, it, I think that's a probably a that's probably take valuable home. take home there's always there. someone who will answer your call and help you yeah, yeah so and it depends I mean if you if you uh, if you want specific sort of obstetric hematology advice through us at King Eddie's um, but in any uh, regional centre yep. if you pick up the phone and ask for the on-call laboratory hematologist you'll go to QE2 so yeah there's, a, there's multiple hematologists you can choose from. Yep. Um, you can take your, take your pick based on what you want. All right. Thanks, Simon. I've, you've, I've grabbed you over lunchtime. So um, um, that was a really good uh, overview, and I've, I've learned quite a bit myself, actually. It's a really good uh, deep dive. Um, so thanks for coming on. No, pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.opsandguidingquickcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to See you next time.